Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, and I'm the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. And I don't know what the weather's like where you're at, but we are getting bombarded with snow and sleet here again in Minnesota. And uh, not a fun time. We were really getting excited about the snow melting, but we're going to get another, it sounds like, 10 to 12 inches here in the next uh, day. So all kinds of fun going on here. Um, For those of you that are new to our show, I just want to take a moment and explain uh, who we are um, as Alzheimer's Speaks. Basically, we're an advocacy-based group based in Minnesota, and our goal is to shift caregiving from crisis to comfort around the world when it comes to dementia care. And we really believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, We can remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those that are in the trenches take back their lives and live with purpose. Together, by having this conversation, we can help everyone at all levels and stages understand the true needs of the disease, not just the myths and the stigmas that isolate people, um, because we really have to conquer those and, and push those down. So I I absolutely love my job. My history is my mom has had memory loss uh, and dementia for 30 years. She's been in a care center for 12 and in her end stages for four. Um, Yet I'm still able to connect with her. I still see this beautiful person inside that body that can't quite do what it used to do. So I thank all of you for your support and I know, I know that you're giving it to us out there because Dr. Oz and Share Care recognized us as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's, and that would not be possible without all of you supporting us. And by support, in terms of advocacy, it's really simple. All you have to do is push that like button, or if you have a Twitter account, tweet it, or email an episode or two on. Um, and, and that really makes a big, big difference. So even though you might feel like you're a, a quiet, silent advocate, there's huge power behind a click of the mouse. So again, thank you very, very much. I also want to give a shout out to uh, care2.com, and that's C-A-R-E, and the number 2.com. They just did a beautiful article that I was not expecting um, that I was included in called Three Women Who Are Redefining the Future of Caregiving. And if you're interested in um, reading that article, just go to www.care, C-A-R-E, and the number 
com, and then in the search bar, just put three women, and that or that um, article will come up. But it's very interesting who the other two women are as well, and what they are doing in the world to change caregiving. So again, thank you, care2.com. The other announcement that I have is, I mentioned this on our last show, and I'm going to continue um, to mention this, but here in Minnesota, in St. Paul, they have what was called a Forever Challenge, and it's minnesotaideaopen.org, and it's a million-dollar idea that people could submit. <clears throat> and so I submitted one for dementia-friendly businesses and communities, and I would love for you to go and read the proposal and make a comment and show your support for shifting our care culture for both businesses and communities. And to do that, I, I did put um, the link in the box, in the chat box, but it's just mn and then ideaopen.org forward slash node forward slash 20737. And you can read the proposal and make a comment. And again, it makes no difference if you're in St. Paul or not. They want something that's going to attract attention and get St. Paul on the map. And if we can get this proposal through here, maybe it will help break the ground in other areas around the world as well. So again, working, to co working collaboratively, I really think we can make a difference. Um, the other notice that I want to make today is just reminding people that on April 18th, we're going to be doing a show with Alzheimer's Disease International, and that will be from Taipei. They are having their um, 28th international conference. So we're going to have um, Mark Wartman, the executive director, back with us. He's been on the show several times, along with Dr. Jacob Roy from India, who is the current chair of the ADI Council, and then Daisy Acosta, who is the previous chair um, for the ADI Council, and she is from the Dominican Republic. So that will be really interesting to see what's going to be happening at that conference to get a little uh, better global vision. And then our channel expert, Rick Phelps, uh, who has early onset. I don't know if he'll be able to make the show or not. Rick is the founder of Memory People, which is a closed group on Facebook um, for people with dementia, family caregivers, and professionals. If you haven't checked that out, um, please go ahead and do so. And if Rick is able to join us, I will definitely pull him into the conversation. Last, before we get going, I want to just make sure that you all know we want you to join the conversation. And you can do that very easily by utilizing your chat box um, and just typing in a comment or a question. I'll be moderating those throughout the show. Or you can call in live at 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. And that's right on your screen there, too, uh, in case you didn't have time to jot that down. So today's show, we're going to be talking about daring to care. And we have author uh, Cheryl Carmichael with us who actually wrote the book um, called Dare to Care, and it is loaded with tons and tons of great information. Uh, Cheryl left her engineering career with HP in 97 to pursue her passion for helping elderly. 
She began her career in aging with the Area Aging uh, Agency on Aging in Phoenix, Arizona, and she earned an AAF, which is awarded the highest designation in gerontology in 2002. And with the Arizona Department of Health Services, she has trained and managed surveyors who inspect, enforce, and license assisted living facilities in Arizona. So she has a really keen eye for what needs to be done and what standards are. She um, was hands-on and a long-distance caregiver for her own mother, grandmother, and grandfather. So, again, not only the business experience, but the personal side. So, welcome, Cheryl. How are you doing today? Hi. Fine. Thank you very much. It sounds like it's cold and blistery up there. Yeah, it is. It's really windy, um, heavy, wet snow here. Not my favorite thing by any stretch. And we're all hoping it will melt quick, but in the meantime, we're going to have to shovel and plow because there's, there's no way around it when, when you're getting that much Oh, definitely a, no. a stay-in day and cook cookies day. Yeah, well, not cook, cook and cookies. Too many appointments for this girl, but oh, okay. it'll, it'll be okay. I'd rather I'd rather be staying in and working than uh, slipping and sliding on the roads. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm really anxious to talk to you um, and get in more depth about this book because when you sent it to me, I was so excited. Um, just. But from the moment I opened it, the way you have laid this out, um, the way the information is structured, it's very easy to be able to kind of chunk down and and process as a reader. And I think that's such a critical piece, especially when we're dealing with caregivers, because time is so, so critical. So why don't we start out with... Can you tell us, you know, why did you decide to write this book, A Dare to Care, Caring for Your Elders? Um, Well, I wrote the book, Dare to Care, Caring for Our Elders, to help family caregivers keep their loved ones living in their own homes as they age. Um, My journey as a family caregiver came when my youngest son, he was still in high school, and my mother was diagnosed with emphysema. And I was working as an engineer, and I lived in Colorado, and she lived in Arizona. And um, I asked her to come live in Colorado, um, knowing that she would need help as as the disease progressed. And um, I can still hear her voice on the phone saying, Cheryl, I want to live at home. I always have. I want to live independently. I want to be near my friends. So without a choice, I became a long-distance family caregiver. And um, when my son left home and went to college, uh, I started volunteering in the age of realm, uh, age, the realm of aging. And um, I found that most of the elderly persons I worked with either wanted or needed financially to stay living in their own homes. So I kind of adopted their uh, their motto, aging in place. I'm sure you've heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in... Um, as the years passed, uh, my passion for serving the elderly actually led me to change careers. And then, as you mentioned, I started in 2000 with the Area Agency on Aging uh, here in Phoenix, Arizona. And I attended night courses at the local community college. And within two years, I had my associates in uh, gerontology, which is the study of aging. It's not nursing. It's the study of aging, um, something I was just so interested in. So. Um, with my degree in hand, I changed jobs uh, to work for the state of Arizona 
uh, health department. And I want to tell you, lots and lots of seniors retire here in sunny Arizona or at least come in the winter months. So our office, um, it dealt with uh, protecting the health and welfare of thousands of elderly residents living in assisted living throughout the state. Um, I wanted to, to share that assisted living is where the senior or their families actually pay the, to have the senior live in these homes or centers so that caregivers are provided 24-7. And here in Arizona, we have over 2,000 homes that are um, assisted livings in over 250 centers. Um, so uh, a large percentage of the people in these are like your mother that um, do have the, the memory loss and they do need the, the caregiving 24-7. So in this office, we, we kind of monitored the... Uh, trained and certified caregivers. So as my journey continued, um, I found out a lot about assisted living, and I'm a, a writer. So over over time, it became just really obvious to me that that I had to write this book. That millions of family caregivers would benefit from just an easy to read reference, and um, I covered the same topics. I chose my topics from those that the certified caregivers had in in their books. Um, and I am a, a certified caregiver, so I went back and looked at some of that. So I basically wrote Dare to Care for Family Caregivers. Okay. Well, and, and that is so important because most of us just get tossed into this circle. And, you know, there's it's all of a sudden, hey, you've arrived. You know, the welcome mat is there, and the path is ahead, but you have no idea what you're in for. At all, you just know that you've got a new title, and so it's uh, it, it can be kind of a daunting thing. I I uh, like your picture of the the hot air balloon because it really is an adventure, and it can be really beautiful or it can be awfully scary, you know, depending on where you are in the journey. And I think our frame of mind too, in terms of how we're going to go about tackling, you know, this whole this whole piece ahead of us. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your personal experience and how you've been touched um, with your own family with Alzheimer's disease? I can. I actually have uh, two very directed um, stories to share. Um, I was introduced to dementia in 1986, so that's three decades. It's, it's interesting that that's uh, the length of time that you have also been involved um, with dementia. And I had children in elementary school, and they were playing baseball. And at the time, we moved to a town that my great-aunt Marie lived. Her only daughter, her only grandson lived in Oregon. So I went to uh, visit her. And on my very first visit, I found her very confused and very sad. And I didn't understand this. Um, I understood the sadness because she she lived alone for a year. Um, She had lost her husband of 60 years to stomach cancer. And she lived in a six-bedroom, three-story home in Manitou Springs. Um, and Lori, I want to tell you, each room and every closet definitely held years of collectibles. But what neither of us knew at that time, because I was an engineer, is that she had dementia. And not knowing more, uh, knowing more about dementia now, um, her actions make sense. Because after that very first visit, I began getting several phone calls at work, um, and she kept asking me to come and be with her. 
And at one point, I actually had her write notes on her calendar telling her what days I worked and, and what days I would be at home. Um, if I'd only known about dementia, but um, I didn't. So over a period of several months, I was able to get her house sold, and we packed up her very important collectibles, and we moved her near her grandson. But um, on another um, family story, I, I want to share with your listeners also that um, my current experience with Alzheimer's, uh, within the last decade, the last seven years, my father Bill, he's been diagnosed with dementia. And he told me of this diagnosis, and this I, I just uh, don't know if other people have uh, had this same introduction, but um, he said that um, he had gone to his doctor for his physical, and, and he was just fuming because the doctor had used the word dementia. Mm-hmm. And in my dad's um, outdated uh, dictionary, dementia is defined as senile or senility. <laughs> and he let me know he was not senile. So uh, since I had my degree in gerontology, I was able to tell him that dementia is, is kind of like memory loss. And that he understood. That he, mm-hmm. he understood that he had noticed his memory loss. And um, so that wasn't as startling to him. He could accept that. And, and to this day, he will tell us now that he has memory loss. So that's why I use the term memory loss in my book for any of the diagnoses of dementia or um, Alzheimer's disease, and I really enjoy being with my dad. Uh, he's in the middle stages. Well, you know, and it's so it's so important because I mean, when you hear senile, you think of going crazy, and <laughs> yeah. you know, it's that's not what this disease is. And you know, when I was 13 years old, my great aunt. Um, they called it senile, you know. Yeah. And I'll never forget the day she didn't remember my name, and I was so devastated. And all all I was told, literally, was, Lori, that's what happens when people get old. They go crazy, and there's exactly. nothing you can do. And I just remember thinking, I don't ever want anyone to feel that kind of pain and to feel that disconnected. And, um, you know, we really have to use terms that, that relate in a in a very human and compassionate level because this this is a disease, you know. It's nothing more. It's nothing less. It's a disease. It's not the person in total. And right. I think when we hear, um, you know, for years we've heard the word Alzheimer's and now dementia. We're starting to hear more of, um, but people just you know looked at them like I can't communicate with them anymore. And that's so far from the truth, even in end stages. You know, there yeah. are still ways to communicate. So um, I thank you for sharing that story with your dad. I think that's a really very important um, story. Can you tell us about um, family caregivers and what do you think that they can learn from your book? Okay. Um, well, i like to introduce Dare to Care comparing it to a cookbook (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and here's why there's not a single recipe but i graduated uh, from college as an electrical engineer and i had learned how to be an engineer but my mother never taught me how to cook so as a newlywed i relied on my betty crocker's cookbook i still do it has you know simple concepts and ingredients that um i have in my pantry and my refrigerator so um Family caregivers can find themselves in the role of caregiving 
and not knowing how to provide care. I think that is really the essence of why I wrote the book, because the caregivers find themselves in this role of caregiving, and they really don't know exactly what to do about it. So I wrote the book um, using words and concepts for non-professionals, families, that uh, they can understand. And I'd like to say that um, um, I begin the book by teaching four types of care. Um, these types of care are just as different as soups, salads, meats, desserts. Um, and I want to take just a minute to explain them, if I can. Sure. And Okay. Um, the first one I call supervisory care. And that is basically hands-off caregiving. And people do this all the time. They make phone calls. They give people rides to church. They go grocery shopping. Um, so supervisory care is hands-off. Personal care is hands-on. This is when you're actually helping your person get dressed or you're helping them in the bathroom or in the shower. Um, then I define memory loss care as comfort care for those with dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Um, but it's memory care is um, in memory loss care is within a safe and secure setting, and that's the key there. And my final type of care is uh, palliative care, and this is the care probably that your mother is most receiving. Um, it's for persons that um, have serious or terminal illnesses, and, and perhaps they're bed-bound or perhaps they're in hospice, but palliative care is, is comfort care, again, in a calm and serene setting. So to make this uh, more personal with my own experience with my mother as a long-distance caregiver, um, at first mother needed supervisory care. Uh, what she needed most in Arizona was a local driver, um, a person who could get her to and from the store or carrying in her groceries or even putting them away because this physical effort of walking was taking her breath away with emphysema. And she also needed an advocate. She needed someone to go with her to the doctor appointments and to, um, including the driving, being in the room, taking the notes uh, at the doctor's, and then actually getting her prescriptions on the way home. Um, and I was just ever so lucky on one of my visits um, to Arizona, and I always visited in March from Colorado. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, as luck would have it, um, her neighbor had a daughter who was looking for part-time work. So Nadine, um, she actually agreed to be my mother's local doctor, daughter. And mm -hmm. she um, helped my mother out whenever she needed a driver. And my mother was even more pleased because I increased um, Nadine's help to include two hours a week of housekeeping uh, for those physically demanding chores that um, just took her breath away. So this help allowed Mother to remain living in her home alone, and it also saved her strength for her outings with her, her friends. So um, that's my personal experience with my mother. But let me get back to using Dare to Care like a, a cookbook, and I have uh, four different examples. So uh, the first thing I do is I tell the person living alone, this is a person that doesn't have a caregiver yet but knows that they're going to be getting to that age. And... Um, I want them to skim through the pages. I want them to highlight the topics that they like to discuss with their family about their own individual caregiving needs. And I encourage them to write notes uh, in the margin, just like you would if you added, like, mushrooms to a recipe or if you wanted to make a note that, that what salad went well with that, um, that baked fish. 
And, and these notes are as much for themselves, but a lot of the people that actually buy my books are um, grandmothers who actually are sending them marked up to their adult grandchildren saying, when I need care, this is what I'd like to you know, talk about and, and this is the kind of care I would like to get. Um, next, I also have uh, the family caregiver to use the index like a cookbook. Uh, to find their their topic of interest. So so let's say for example nutrition. They can turn to page five and they can they can review the ten warning signs that might indicate that their person is at nutritional risk. And they can add a note to that wide side margin to remind themselves to talk to their mother to ask her if she's eating a fruit or vegetable with every meal. Um, they can also under nutrition they can read about therapeutic diets. Uh, which is on page 10, that goes into, um, you know, bland diets, salt-free diets, sugar-free diets for diabetics. Also, um, there's nutritional tips specifically for the person with memory loss uh, found starting on page 56. So um, another uh, idea that I like to share for family members who share the care of their person, and this is how um, my... Um, stepmom and brother and I kind of use the book is, uh, for example, you know, if my dad goes from staying with a daughter to um, going to his son for a few months. So you send the book along with dad in his suitcase. And the the daughter caregiver can write um, several notes in the, the blank areas found in the care plans chapter. And these notes might be specifically to, let's say, what works best. So um, I might jot down that Dad has a hard time with buttons and zippers, use pants with electric, uh, elastic waistbands and mm-hmm. uh, golf shirts uh, so that he can pull them over his head and always remember to use his suspenders because Daddy doesn't like a belt. He wants suspenders. Um, I also put in what, what does not work. <laughs> um, do not try to have Dad take a shower or dress before he eats his breakfast. He, he loves his breakfast in the morning when he gets up, and until he gets his breakfast, that's what he's focused on. Um, you can also add notes to family members um, who are helping out, and you might highlight, you know, don't let him pull on you. This is a problem we had when you want him to stand up. So what I have told the family, and, and they could write this in the care plan, is that, you know, coach dad to slide forward in the chair first, and then have him push up on the chair arms and, you know, using his legs to stand. You stand near him and you, you know, tell him to balance his feet before he takes a step. And then we always encourage him to use the cane. So I've actually written this in his care plan, so if this book goes with him someplace, people understand that he likes to be pulled up rather than doing it himself. And that mm-hmm. can hurt your back. Um, now, finally, uh, one of the last things I use um, uh, as, as a cookbook is I ask the, the family members to read and highlight Dare to Care before they go to see their um, aging parents or relatives. Um, and the reason I do this is so that the book can be used as a storyboard. Um, we use those in engineering all the time to, to kind of brainstorm and start discussions about what either is currently needed because they've they've been talking on the phone, or what future caregiving needs might be that you know the relative might come up with. So mm-hmm. I guess I say use it like a cookbook. Just um, keep it handy, uh, use it as a reference, 
and use those wide side margins to personalize um, the book for the person that you're giving care to. And I also encourage to buy an extra one and uh, give it to your long-distance family members. That way they kind of know what you're dealing with um, as well. Yeah, I I love the way you design this because there is room to write. And, um, you know, so many books are, are loaded with great information, but you can't really use it as a reference book. Right. Um, because there's, you know, you're stuffing pages in, or you're writing in something else, and you really have given um, ample space to really use this as a reference book. And uh, like I said, the, the way you've designed it and laid it out is is so cool. Can you talk? I mean, I get us a little bit off topic here, but yeah. one of your chapters is on emotional health, and I just think that that is so critical and so overlooked sometimes in terms of the care process because we're so busy with those physical tasks that a lot of times people forget about that. Um, what were your thoughts when you decided to, to write the, you know, that chapter? Uh, about emotional health? Mm-hmm. I'm not really following what we're... Um, give me a hint. Give me a, okay, um, so you know you're talking about looking. You know you've got talking about looking for stress um, factors, oh, okay. and I just I just okay. think it's so important. And I think so many times people are so busy doing a physical task, they forget about the emotional side of care, because we're so task oriented. We're so worried about just checking it off the list, saying that it's well, and that is so so very true that um, you need to. Um, one of the things I like is to, like, um, for emotional for me, is just to take a break, to go outside. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, um, you know, Daddy loves to be outside. He's an outdoor man. And so just getting, uh, breaking into um, going outside and and maybe taking a walk around the block or, um also, maybe just sitting back out on the back patio, and uh, we have a great backyard with uh, bushes and hummingbirds, and uh, able to just sit there and and that way, you know, you're you're with them, but you're not um, you're not as uh, stressed as trying to get something um, done like that. I also believe that um, caregivers um, have to. Um, Well, they just have to realize that it's a very stressful job and they have to take time for them themselves. And um, one of the the prayers that I have in here is the caregiver prayer. And um, um, I say, grant me the serenity to to accept the things I cannot change, (laughs) the courage to change things that I can, and uh, the wisdom to know the difference. And I've added to that that well-known prayer, and please grant me uh, a sense of humor. Um, laughter, as you know, can uh, greatly disrupt whatever stress that you have during whatever moment or whatever, and you can back off and use a little humor and then go forward with the care. Yeah, I think humor is very, very important in the in the scheme of things. That's, that's for sure. Um, well, let's go on to my my next question here. Can you tell us about some specific topics that you think would be um, pertinent to Alzheimer's disease and dementia that you have in your book? Yes, yes. First of all, I 
you know, I'm a little prejudiced, but I think every page mm-hmm. <laughs> on Dare to Care, that the caregiver can actually find a topic that is, is useful to caring for a person with Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, now, in my, my chapter that specifically talks about memory loss care, um, that teaches the, the families um, more the new to the diagnosis. Uh, it, it's not written as an all-inclusive. This is what memory care loss, uh, memory loss care is. Um, but so it talks about the the basic terms and definitions that the the families will be hearing. The the types and causes of dementia uh, are described. Um, the progressive stages of Alzheimer's disease are listed. Um, this is taken directly from the Alzheimer's Association uh, that talks about the you know beginning stage, mid stage, end stages. And um, also, I stress the importance of um, general supervision and crisis intervention. Uh, it is uh, discussed in this area. Um, that's what typically, when you're new to it, you know, all of a sudden you find out about it. It uh, sneaks up on you, and you find out that um, oh, mom's going to need some some general supervision now. So I talk about that. Um, another story I have to tell is that um, I did some um, volunteer work at an adult day health care center, and, mm-hmm. and I really recommend caregivers um, get their people in, enrolled in, in adult day health care. Um, what I did is in the afternoon I did puzzle activities with an elderly gentleman. He was an engineer as well, and he had Alzheimer's disease. And we had the, the greatest time with a, a puzzle of the United States. And um, this man could name all the states, and he definitely knew where they all went, and he got such an accomplishment of, of finishing that puzzle in the afternoons. And, um, but what happened is that his daughter would pick him up at uh, the end of her workday, and, and I would visit with um, her when she came in, and I found out that, like me, she was a sandwich caregiver. She had kids in junior high. And when her mother died, her father moved in with her family. And this is just such a typical story. She had really no idea of her father's memory loss because her mother hadn't really gone too much into this. And so prior, um, this was before I wrote Dare to Care. And so in my memory loss chapter, I actually, I I wrote several topics uh, that I had discussed with this daughter about caregiving for her dad. Um, What I find is, is knowing what to look for or expect from a person who's been your parent but is now rely on your supervision and care is something that the caregiver has to learn. And um, the person with um, Alzheimer's or memory loss, I, I really stress that a safe environment and general supervision is just is just the key. Um, they don't need as much care as they just need to be watched and make sure that they're not in harm's way. And... Mm-hmm. Um, but going back to my cookbook comparison, <laughs> I do want to tell you there are many blank forms in this book, and these forms are meant to be copied and filled out with uh, current information. Um, there's usually an accompanying sample form that kind of gives the person a, a starting place as to how they would, would fill it in. And, and what I'd like to talk about is the emergency paramedic sheet, mm-hmm. and this Found, uh, this is found on page 161, and I'm going to go over this 
sheet um, is, is basically got the name, address, birth date, and age of your person. It's also got, um, you know, some insurance information. But the, the most important part of this is that you, you list the diagnosis and uh, the medical conditions of your person. So handing this sheet to a paramedic or uh, emergency room doctor, it gives them a clear person, a clear picture of your person's medical status before whatever you're in for in the emergency. And on this form, it, there's also a place for contact these people in case of emergency. So if a person was to fill this out, call 911 and hand it to them, um, when they get there, then this would also have the emergency contact numbers of family. It would have maybe the primary care's number and maybe any specialist's number. And then I've also included little check boxes for um that attached are copies of my advanced directives. Um, you know, do they want CPR? Do they want a feeding tube? Uh, so it's very important to, to to give these emergency people your advanced directives, as well as uh, a check mark for a place to attach a copy of my current um, chart of medication that's being taken. And that brings me to a, another useful form is that I call it the current medication chart. And this is discussed in um, my medication services um, chapter. And what this form does is it communicates what medication the person is taking. And it is so important if, if all of a sudden they're in the hospital, that, that say they're, they're taking Synthroid for their thyroid, that, that the doctors know that they need to continue taking the Synthroid and what, what, medic, what um, dosage. So just real simply, the medication chart is um, the medication's name, the dosage, um, when and how often it's taken, and uh, what the medication looks like. When you have multiple caregivers, it's always nice to know what the medication looks like. It's a little round yellow pill and why it's taken. Um, so I, I supply a lot of, of helpful forms in the book, um, and they're both blank and, and, and uh, sample, as I mentioned. But um, one of the other forms that goes along with the medication services is a medication log. And that actually you, you track your person when you're living at home. You're tracking what medication. So you actually look, you know, for the month, you write a little checkbox on Monday that you gave them Synthroid in the morning, and you gave them, you know, whatever other medication, blood pressure, whatever. Um, because one of the things that's real important with people with, with memory loss is, is avoiding the medication errors. And um, another point I wanted to make about the safe environment in, in medication is it might be a good thing sometimes to actually lock up the medication um, so that uh, your person can't forget that they took the medication um, if they're to that point in the um, the stages of memory loss that they wouldn't remember and they might overdose on that uh, that particular medication. So it might be a good idea just to lock up. Um, I, I think that that's a really good idea. At our memory cafe uh, yesterday that was brought up that all of a sudden uh, one of the people that has dementia took um, his wife's pills. And uh -huh. she said it looked like mine, and you know, and and she's like, he's never done that before, and that's one thing with this disease, things are constantly changing, and so to lock them up, to put them out of out of the way and out of sight, so that can't happen because, 
you know, in their situation, it didn't cause a problem. But in how many situations could that have been a major, major deal? Um, and you just don't want to take that kind of risk. Um, same with how you how you give the pills. You know, people said, well, you know, they've gone through different modes from just having them in the container and the person could take them with early stages to having to put them in a pill box. But that can get complicated when you have multiple pills during a day and which day. Um, and I know with my folks, I ended up doing the med chart, and then I ended yeah. up going to just small little manila envelopes and just putting out what was needed at the time because it just got too complicated um, for my dad with brain cancer and my mom with dementia to sort through. And so knowing that you have to keep assessing that um, as that care partner or as as you had um, hired kind of that local daughter, I love that, you know, yeah. not replacing you but, but filling in and, and watching those things. So those are wonderful forms, and people struggle with those so much in terms of, you know, what do I do and how do I make a form and, and things. One thing I was going to ask you, Cheryl, is do you have um, or have you given any thought to um, having the forms on an electronic mode where people could pick them up from you once they've purchased the book at all, or maybe you already have that in play? Well, one of the things I am I am thinking about um, doing it two different ways. Um, now, I'm not quite as technologically advanced as I was 15 years ago. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think it would be one of the things I'm thinking about is uh, people use uh, Kindles. And so uh-huh. I'm thinking of uh, perhaps, you know, putting on something that they can actually, you know, download it to their, um, uh, what do you call that, their tablet Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't joined that that phase yet, but um, that they could do that. Uh, the other thing is is to have somebody actually create an app for me, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, that they would put onto their um, their tablets and, and be able to use an app. I'm the kind of person that I still like um, being able to print it out. So what the hard I'm, copy, I'm, mm-hmm. yeah, hard copy. So what I'm thinking is that most people might not want to buy a hard copy, you know, like you would go to buy the book. But mm-hmm. they might buy a Kindle copy um, mm-hmm. that they would be able to to look at and and do that. So I'm I'm thinking about expanding into that because th- that's medication is just you know it's 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 complicated and and that's where you can easily I mean that's the the hardest part in assisted living where the medication errors you know mm-hmm. I mean it was just. Um, that's that's what we always wrote up. That's when we would go into the facilities. I mean, they give great care, but it's always the medication errors that that um, that might hurt. So um, I have thought about that, Lori. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I think even, and I know you don't have a an official website, but even on, I don't know if you could do it on Facebook or not, but, um, you know, there are free websites like, you know, Word, WordPress and stuff where you could probably um, have a hidden page or a code where mm-hmm. um, once, you know, if they bought the book, if they got a code, um, then they could go ahead and, and download the, the forms or something as PDFs because they are, they're really just marvelous forms. And, you know, not only the medications and, you know, the, the paramedic one I thought was great, but you also have one in there for, you know, the care plan and the medical records. And, you know, that's just such a huge a huge piece of this puzzle, you know, you know, how are they going to react um, 
you know, to various things that are just so, so important. And then I also loved the chapter on, you know, they still live in the house, so having the home be safe in all rooms. And that's something I don't think people really think about. It's like we've always lived here. Of course it's safe. Um, But you really have to have an eye for safety when you become that care partner, don't you think? I do. I do. And and you're exactly right. The the care partner living in the house doesn't see the, 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 the safety hazards. Now, as coming in, if you're the outside caregiver, in other words, you're coming to visit your parents at Christmas, you're going to see that. But, um, you know, you're going to notice that, that things are, you know, that they can't um, walk around their furniture, or that, the, you know, that the tables are cluttered, or that um, maybe that there's a, a tear in the carpet <laughs> that, mm-hmm. you know, you've been, you've been stepping over. And and home safety is, is so important, especially... Um, in Alzheimer's, where they might not just recognize that that's a, a, a safety issue. They might not really realize um, that they're going to be tripping over that piece of carpet um, if well, they yeah, don't pick their feet up. Well, in you know, a lot of homes have throw rugs, and that can be just yes. so dangerous, you know, from it a tripping is. hazard. And people don't have a clue how dangerous that is, or lighting or lack of um, can be huge. I was again at our, our memory cafe. They were talking about um, one of our members had bought us all these little um, lights that came on. You know, when you walked by, and they were just like they were like a little night light, except they had a sensor on them. And a couple of them said we went out and bought more. And instead of paying big bucks for high tech, you know, right. um, security lighting, we just have these plugged in. And he says. So, you know, when my wife gets up, as soon as her feet hit the ground, that light goes on. And he says, I just have them throughout the house so it picks picks it up um, that somebody is walking by and it's enough light um, so she's not walking around in the dark um, during the night. You know, just small little things or, um, you know, other concerns can be the stove, you know, if people are cooking, so taking the knobs off the stove or disconnecting it so it's still there or um, disconnecting the the um, garbage disposal. That can be a real safety, you know, issue that people just, you don't think about because you don't necessarily use it all the time or you don't always see it. But, you know, with dementia, I can't tell you how many times um, people with dementia have told me, oh, yeah, I'm not allowed in the kitchen anymore. I've started too many fires. Yes. Very common. Um, very common. And getting into cleaning chemicals, too. Oh, um, yeah. One of the things that um, people leave, you know, I mean, how many chemicals have you got under your sink? Too many. It's um, <laughs> <laughs> things like that, that that I suggest that you go ahead and, and remove them and, and actually put them up in a, a place that might not be familiar or they have these, these locking cabinets now. Um, one of the things that I found is that they're magnetic. Have you heard about mm-hmm. these, Lori, where... where um, there, there is a lock, just like you would put a key into it and, and turn mm-hmm. it. So it's a traditional lock in a cabinet, but they're magnetic. So you don't see it from the outside. You don't see the lock. You just can't get that cabinet open. And then there's a little round, um, basically a little round magnet <laughs> that you mm-hmm. put someplace that's not noticed. And then um, when you want to get into that cabinet, you just run that magnet over and it unlocks the lock. 
and I thought that was the neatest new technology. Talk about simple, you know. And I, I will do that, the lighting, um, because, yeah, we leave the lights. Um, we've got a bathroom that we can leave our porch light on, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and it lights up the bathroom. So, you know, that Daddy can come across the um, from the bedroom to the bathroom and, and not turn the light on but know where, you know, where it is and, and get to it. So that's, that's very yeah. interesting. A couple other things I wanted to point out in your book, too, that I really loved was the life story. And, again, that comes with a an example and a blank form. You want to tell people about the life story and how that can be helpful? I would just love to because that is really my most favorite part of the book. Um, because in, in memory loss and in dementia, communication is just so important. So um, creating a life story is, is a very helpful tool because it introduces uh, uh, your person to others uh, who don't necessarily know them who are going to be helping you with caregiving. So a life story, despite what it says, is a single page. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and again, it's for people who don't know the person, but it gives them talking points. So um, the reader can find a, an example of it, and I'm just going to review some of the the headlines of the life story looking at that and it says you know my name is but i like to be called and um it says my wife's name is and and maybe my children's and um there's also a section for grandchildren because um grandchildren are now adults and they're coming and being with um the grandparents so uh skipping that generation i think it's important to talk about the grandchildren being in there it also has a place for their their birthplace or perhaps uh, their parents' names or their siblings' names. Um, and then there's also a, a, a place on the the life story for my interests. And mm-hmm. there's also a section for my special care needs, and I'm going to go into that for a minute. And then the, the favorite foods and, and veg, um, snacks or beverages that they would like to do. So my sample life story, um, it indicates that Jerry, he enjoys uh, model trains, that he has one set up in his garage, and that he also likes watching baseball games on the TV. So just by reading these three things, you have a lot to talk about to begin a conversation. But the occasional caregiver, in other words, an actual caregiver, not just a visitor, also finds that, that Jerry uses hearing aids. So if he's not hearing you, go look for his hearing aids. And that he needs you to look right at him when you're you're speaking and um, it also mentions that he needs a reminder to go to the bathroom every two hours, but he can go on his own. And it tells the caregiver that um, during the day he likes iced water. You don't think about this, but if you want to get somebody to drink something, um, what do they like? And some people like room temperature. Some people like lemon in their water. Some people like iced water. So um, putting things like that down on the um life story is just really helpful to people who don't know the person. And another thing that they've used a life story for more recently is to place it by the bed of a person who's either been hospitalized or um, has been put into a rehab situation or a hospice setting, and that's um, away from their home, so it's away from their caregiver isn't there, their care partner isn't there all the time. So Mm -hmm. the life story... um, it, it basically, to me, it, it speaks for the person who's unable to begin the conversation. And you had mentioned you can always 
you can you can communicate with a person mm-hmm. with Alzheimer's, and and it's just easier sometimes if if you're given those words of cues to to get them started to communicate with you that they can feel comfortable with you if you use the word baseball or you know something like that then it's it's a it's a setting that um that I just believe that that if you give this life story there that it it helps other people talk to your person and I think that's so key in um, yeah memory and life. many times they can't use words to communicate back with us and we have to learn to look at the the smile and the dimples and the eyes you know the glint in the eyes and things but using their keywords that they're familiar with triggers a response um, typically from them. We just have to learn to to look for different things. The other thing in the book that I wanted to mention is you talk um, on, what is it, page 14, about functional skill limitations. And, And I think that that's a really interesting point that most people don't think much about. Can you explain what you mean by that in a nutshell? Yes, I can. Uh, functional skill is um, your person's ability to perform the tasks um, that are required. Uh, so, like slower reflexes or decreasing vision, um, decreasing hearing, uh, whether they're in pain, um, those are all, uh, they, um, they, it's something that you have to go in and look at the person, and that's again on the care plan. So um, one of the things I I mention, which is obvious, is is driving. I start with with driving. Do they have the ability, the reflexes to drive? Um, my mother didn't have the strength to drive, but uh, it's very important to know where their functional limitations are and and what they might be. Whether it's you know they can't see as well, or whether they can't hear as well. Okay. That's and I think again very very important um, thing for people to to understand. I, uh, I I highly recommend this book. I think it's one that people will use and want to share, um, and it will be it will be a resource book. It's not a you know, and it's one of those books too where you can the way you've laid it out is you don't have to read it all in one setting. Um, you right. can target the topics that you really need help with. Um, at the time, and then come back to it later. And again, plenty of room to to go ahead and write and um, make notes of what's working, what's not working. And I did put in the chat box um, your Facebook page, and then also the Amazon link for people if they want to go ahead and and purchase the book. I'd like to open the lines in the chat box. Again, if anybody out there has any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Uh, You can, again, just type in the chat box if you'd like, or you can call in live at 714-364-4757. And again, that would be 714-364-4757. Um, any any final comments that you're that you would like to make about how you think people could utilize this book in their lives, Cheryl? I would, and and I would. Thank you. Um, I've got one last story, which it looks like I don't quite have time to tell. But um, oh, it will be fine. We'll be fine. Go ahead. Okay. Um, well, it has to do with my husband's mother, and um, we talked on the phone a lot. And in one particular conversation, I. I noticed that she wasn't 
answering my questions except with a yes or a no. And so I got right on the phone with her doctor, and long story short, she had um, a stage four brain tumor. Mm-hmm. And when they they went in and did the MRI, they immediately declared her incapacitated. And she was never able to communicate her, her needs or wishes, her thoughts again. And it was just a sudden thing. And um, I've got a, a final chapter in my book called The Paper Chase. And the paper chase addresses locating and creating or completing all your financial, legal, and your advanced directives. And and the point of my uh, story with her is that she had failed to complete her advanced directives. Her husband had died. She'd been living alone for nine years. She was a pharmacist. She was very articulate. And and the heartbreaker was is that in a time of crisis, we actually had to go to court to get her um, appointed as, a, as her power of attorney so that we could make decisions. And, and in her case, when, when, when she needed us most to be her advocate, um, you know, to speak and act on her behalf, we didn't know her wishes, and the family was in disagreement about her care, and we were fighting over decisions about yes or no to, to surgery for this brain tumor or um you know, chemotherapy, radiation, and, and and I really believe, and I've been told by a lot of people that the book alone, if if you just get to this, it, it explains um, some of these important papers. It's not meant to be legal advice, but it is a certainly a good storyboard again to formulate a plan and to look and see what you might want to get in order um, years before they're needed. Years before they're needed. So, in in my opinion. Um, the paperwork again. It isn't just physical caregiving; it is also the the paper trail, the um, trying to get all these you know, medications and, and and contacts, and and again the important advanced directives. You know, do you want a feeding tube or would you prefer not to? So I, I believe yeah. that. Well, and it's amazing too. I mean, I was the primary care um, giver for my dad and for my mom, and mm-hmm. and my brothers. They don't have a clue. Of the work, I mean, it's not one iota of a yeah. clue of of the time and the right. due diligence, and um, and I wanted to do it, but it was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I mean, right. a lot, a lot of time, um, you know, going into, you know, making those decisions and, and making that care transition be smooth and consistent, and um, yeah, it it blows me away. <laughs> you know, and, and you want to create this to their benefit. That's the thing, is that, you know, whoever you're caring for, you you don't want to go in and take charge. You want mm-hmm. to actually to, to, to help them. To, I mean, that was my, you know, with my mother, she didn't want me to come and run her life anymore. She yep. just wanted what she needed to have, and um, I just... I really believe, and I do, I, I, this book is not written to nursing. This book is written to the family caregiver, and it's, it's got topics that, that they're daily topics. And, and like you say, it, is, you can, it doesn't take from start to finish um, over three hours to skim through and read it and, and make your, your highlights. Well, and the thing, too, I mean, even though you've written it towards family, it's very powerful for the professional um, in terms of seeing, because I think so many times professionals, we take everything for granted because we deal with it day in and day out. 
But when you see it all laid out, it's like, oh, my gosh, we are doing a lot of stuff here. And this isn't, you know, this isn't second nature to most. Right. You know, they're not dealing with 200 case files, (laughs) and and this (laughs) isn't the norm. Um, And they don't want it to be. And so you've got that denial and that resistance on top of trying to get all this stuff organized, and then you throw in the family dynamics, and, you know, what a party. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. And, And you either have too many cooks in the soup or you don't have enough, like you said, and, and that was how it was with me. My brother didn't have a clue of my mother's need for emphysema, just didn't mm-hmm. have a clue. But um, but I certainly did, and, and I, I did it to the best of my ability to, to regard her feelings and her desires. So that's how it aged. Well, Lori, I want to so much, I so much appreciate you allowing me to, to speak with you and to speak to your family caregivers today. And I really do, I love, I've been looking at your your website and Alzheimer's Speaks, and I just, I really appreciate everything that you're doing um, for the people that are um, involved in this 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 journey, let's say this this hot balloon journey. Yep. <laughs> and I, really, I appreciate well, so much everything you've done. Well, thank you. And the easiest way for people to get a hold of you looks like on Facebook and just uh, go to Facebook and put in Dare to Care Elders and you should go ahead and pop right up or you can always go to Amazon and search Dare to Care uh, with Cheryl Carmichael. And uh, like I said, I highly recommend the book. I I think it's really very well done and will be um, just a great resource for people not just dealing with dementia, but life in general, and and helping us plan, even if we don't have anything coming up, it gives you food for thought of what we should all be doing as individuals to better control our lives and better plan for the future. So thank you so much for your time today. Okay, thank you, Laurie. I appreciate it. Take care. Okay, have a, have a great day. Bye now. I'm going to go ahead and pull in our next guest here, And I'm very excited to have uh, Dr. Donald Moss with us. And he is the author of the award-winning book, Alzheimer's, My Journey to a Next Generation Treatment. I was actually introduced to uh, Dr. Moss by one of our listeners, Rose Lamont. So I thank you so much, Rose, for uh, making this introduction. I I love when my listeners um, push me in the direction uh, for different contacts and it's just very engaging because, you know, uh, as much as I'd like to have my eyes and ears all over, I can't. And so I do very much appreciate your feedback um, from our audience here with this. So Dr. Moss has been researching innovative methods for treating dementia for 30 years. He's also the author of over 100 scientific papers, book chapters, and presentations at national and international scientific meetings. He recently retired um, from his faculty position as a tenured full professor um, at the University of Texas, El Paso, and he really has now devoted his time uh, and his attention full-time to bringing MSF, which is a unique and proven effective treatment for dementia, to Alzheimer's patients. So welcome, Dr. Moss. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Lori. And you? Good, good. It's a little blistery up here in Minnesota. We're getting like uh, 10 to 12 inches of snow and sleet, so all kinds oh, of fun going on. 
<laughs> well, I want to start out by thanking you for having me on the show. You're the first person that's giving me a nationwide uh, opportunity to tell the story of MSF, and I want to thank Rose for recommending me. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to have you on because, you know, there's so many, you know, Alzheimer's Speaks is really about giving voice to all, and there are so many hidden voices that need to be heard, and yours is definitely one of them. You've got a very interesting story, and I, I thank you for sending me um, the book. And um, it's it's uh, it's an interesting journey, you know, that you have been on. So I'm going to have you, if if you wouldn't mind, just telling people um, what brought you to write the book. <laughs> well, I wrote the book out of frustration. As you mentioned, uh, the drug that I've been working on for the last 30 years is MSF, and its development was actually abandoned in 2011 because the patent is uh, expiring pretty soon. And uh, I, I just couldn't stand by and let that happen. As a college professor, the precursor to the drug MSF came to my attention 30 years ago. And to have it just die now uh, is unacceptable to me. So I wrote the book. And the book is really an expose of, in part, a broken system of drug development that we have, uh, its reliance on patents, big money, big pharma. And I think it uh, passes by lots of opportunities for other real drugs to be developed. Everybody on your show, everybody that's listening today probably knows that there are five to six million of us uh, that have Alzheimer's dementia today in the United States. And our whole life risk is that one in five of us or 20% of us in our population will eventually have it. it it's just frustrating. In this age of rocket, uh, skyrocketing health care costs, budget crises and burgeoning age, aging population, wouldn't it be nice to have the power to introduce a drug that promises to be at least three times more effective at restoring memory than anything else in the market? A drug that I has already so. been tested. Yeah. <laughs> a drug that's already been tested in uh, human trials in Mexico and Germany, and I think we could actually offer it for a dollar to two dollars per day, about the co uh, cost of a cup of coffee. Wow! I would like to cheaper than a I cup of like coffee. To, yeah. <laughs> well, and not only could we offer it for a low price, and I'll explain why as we go into the into the program why we can do it for so little, but it could save billions in direct costs to people and insurance companies that have to buy it if we can offer it like that. And it can allow the patients more years of quality of life. But anyway, I wrote the book because such a drug really exists. It's MSF. And it's been proven in the clinical trials that were run 15 years ago. Uh, it's been proven to be effective. And so it was that frustration that did that to me. I also need to say that MSF is not a complementary medicine or a holistic medicine or a dietary supplement or something that's anecdotal or based on, based on unfounded hope. MSF is a mainstream pharmaceutical 
that is rooted, its, its mechanism of action is rooted in the best understood basic science of memory loss and Alzheimer's disease, and it's the, it addresses the same problem as Aricept and Exelon, except it does it much, much more effectively. When you say uh, more effectively, can you ex expand on that? Uh, yes. In a uh, phase two clinical trial in actual patients, where we treated the patients with MSF, and it was our first view at efficacy, whether it really worked or not. The, the study showed that MSF produced three to five times more improvement on memory as measured by the Alzheimer's disease assessment scale than is reported for Exelon or Aricept. And if I could, I'd like to tell the story of, of uh, Bill. Uh, one of our first patients, uh, actually in the book, I'm sorry, I call him Fred, I'd like to tell the story of Fred, one of the first patients that took the drug. He scored only six on the Mini Mental, and the Mini Mental is a 30-question exam uh, to measure dementia, and a normal person would get 30 questions correct on it, 29 or 30, and, and uh, Fred was scoring six. He was almost too demanded for us to try the drug on him. We didn't know whether he would show improvement or not. Uh, with, some, with a few weeks of MSF treatment, he began to remember what was going on the day before, the week before. He correctly remembered going to a symphony one night several days before. He began to read the newspaper with comprehension, and uh, that, was both <laughs> that was both a good thing and a bad thing because he was uh, annoyed at what the government was doing, and he <laughs> began to grump and be his old self again. But <laughs> he showed real improvement on the drug. And that, as our first patient that really took the drug, it was really exciting to see that happen. Well, that's huge. That's absolutely huge. Yeah, um, it, it is. Yes? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh and he wasn't the only one. It was a small trial. We had 15 people in the trial, which is an extremely small trial. Uh, by the way, I ran the whole uh, clinical trial for $50,000, by the way, not $50 million, but $50,000. And we had other patients that uh, responded in the same way. And if I could, I would like to – I get excited about this, Lori. Is it okay if I tell another story? Please, please. This is this is all about getting it out there. So yeah, go ahead. Well, we had a, a 75-year-old woman uh, in the study who, at the beginning of MSF treatment, she was pretty much uh, limited to her bed unless her daughter came in in the morning and got her up and toileted her and showered her and dressed her and led her around by the hand. And after she was on MSF. It takes three or four weeks for MSF to take effect. After she was on MSF for three or four weeks, she began to get up on her own, dress herself, shower, talk to her family, enjoy social interactions. She went to a wedding, talked to people that were family members at the wedding, and had a great time. Her uh, 
daughter saw so much improvement in her that her daughter came to see me. And this was a double-blind, placebo-controlled study where we did not tell either the patient or their caregivers or the testers who was on the drug and who was on placebo, but they knew that they were going to be on placebo for eight weeks or MSF for eight weeks in the first part of it. And then after the first eight weeks, they would switch, and they would be on the, the opposite condition. If they started on MSF, they'd go to placebo. And if they started on placebo, they'd go back over to MSF. And this woman's daughter knew by the clear improvement in her mother that she was on MSF, and she knew at the end of eight weeks that she was going to go over to placebo because I had explained the, I had to explain the design of the experiment to people. Mm-hmm. Well, she came to see me one day, and she walked into the laboratory, and she came over to me, and she grabbed the front of my white coat in her in both fists, and she pulled me down to her face, and she said, I don't want you to take my mother off of MSF. I want you to leave her on there. Of course, I couldn't do that. But it's mm-hmm. an example of the kind of improvement that we saw with MSF, and these stories are recounted in, in my book. Well, and the passion um, that I think comes through when when people are seeing that progress and that change, and it it doesn't make sense why why you can't continue, even though I mean rationally you can understand it's a study, but um, it, you know you just you want that you see the change you you believe in that, and so why can't you you know? But like you said, the the requirements here are so strict. Um, in terms of the the guidelines and so forth, it's it's difficult difficult to do. Can you tell us about? You had mentioned you know it cost you fifty thousand dollars versus you know fifty fifty million or, or five million whatever. Can you can you tell us how did you how did you work around that? Um, how are you? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, as a professor working alone in a university, I didn't have access to big money at all, and I had made many, many attempts to get money to develop a drug, and and grants uh, and that kind of thing are not available. So I decided that I had to go to a foreign country to see if I could uh, get approval in another country where the costs are so much lower. And the first thing I did was go to Argentina, and I was down in Argentina in 1992 for several months trying to get a study approved down there, and it, and it was eventually not approved, and uh, it was really disappointing. But then I had an opportunity to run a trial in Mexico, and because I live in El Paso, Mexico is not far away, and there was, this opportunity was in Chihuahua. Chihuahua, Mexico is only 235 miles south of El Paso, and so I developed that opportunity down there. And that required, of course, that I had to have run the toxicity tests and other tests in rats. And at that time, a lot of tests had been done in monkeys as well. Uh, But one of the issues that I'd run into in Argentina was the fact that no humans had taken the drug yet. And it was going to be the first time any human took the drug. And so to prepare for the trial in Mexico, I decided to take the drug myself, and I took it for a couple of months so that I could go down there and and tell the people in Mexico, 
I know it's not toxic. I know it won't hurt you because I've taken it. Uh, actually, my wife let me do that. I went home one day and I said, if I'm going to go to Mexico, I have to take the drug myself. And she said, okay. <laughs> that kind of surprised me. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a longer conversation. But I took the drug for a couple of months with no problems, whatever. I didn't notice any difference. Uh, but I also have to tell you that I wanted to do the same after I did it to myself. I wanted to do the same experiment on the family dog to see if dogs were okay with it. And I went home to my wife and I said, I want to do the same experiment that I've just finished on myself. I want to do it on our, we had a beautiful yellow Labrador retriever. I said, I want to do the experiment on our dog. And my wife said, no, (laughs) there was no (laughs) way. (laughs) But anyway, I found out two things. First, the drug is quite uh, tolerable. I didn't have any effect, whatever. And secondly, I found out that the dog is maybe more important than me. But (laughs) on the basis of that, I got a $50,000 grant from a local foundation here in El Paso, the Coldwell Foundation. They had $50,000 that I could use for my Alzheimer's research. And I went down to Chihuahua and I talked to the medical doctor down there and we got approval to run the, the study. We got the approval through the University of Texas at El Paso Human Subjects Committee. It was properly reviewed. And we got approval through the uh, related authorities in Mexico, including the Mexican federal government, because it involved a collaboration between Mexico and another country. We had to go to Mexico City and get the national approval for it. And when it was fully approved, we could run it for $50,000 in Mexico. It was incredible. Wow. wow. And, and a typical study like that here in the U.S. would run, what would you guess? <laughs> oh, it would run uh, at least $5 million or $10 million, I expect. Uh, I really don't know. It, it's been so far out of my uh, possible range of, paying for it that I, I really don't know what it would be. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Now, are the criteria real different from, from one to the other that that drives this cost? Or Well, uh, yes and no. One of the things that made the trial in Mexico uh, more affordable is that it could be approved without the uh, enormously expensive and detailed uh, safety and toxicity studies that are required in the United States. At that time, I didn't have enough toxicity studies in rats and dogs uh, to get approval in the United States, but I could get approval in Mexico. And this is an important point. Uh, Drug companies invest millions and millions of dollars in toxicity testing before they ever find out whether the drug works, before they ever get to introduce it into humans to find out if it has any effect. And I think it's very helpful to get some indication of real efficacy in humans, even if it's under close medical supervision, before you have to go back and invest millions, maybe 50 million, in 
animal toxicity tests before you ever find out if the drug works. I think that drives up the cost in the United States. Well, and talk about a significant drive of cost. Um, I mean, that's just, uh, it's unbelievable that there can be that that big of a swing. Yes, it's, it's a huge difference. Um, so, you know, you talked about about your frustrations. Can you give us a little bit more detail just on your journey? Because this really has been a long journey with you in this process. Can you give us a little more insight um, oh, into the, the time frame of things? <laughs> oh, the time frame of things. Well, in 1982, which is 30 years ago, I realized that these chemicals had really special properties in the brain. At that time, I didn't know anything about Alzheimer's disease, and in fact, nobody did, really. Uh, what was known in 1980 uh, was pretty much wrong, actually, and incomplete. Uh, but I realized that these drugs could have an effect in, in Alzheimer's, and they might be really powerful. And I tried to get a patent for these drugs, this class of compounds in the early 1980s. And, uh, you know, I work at a university, and so the university owns the rights to the patent, and they take it over and they uh, uh, file the patent. They do all the patent work. But between the university and me, I had a hand in it, we bumbled the opportunity to patent it. And mm -hmm. at that time, it looked like it would never be available for use in patients. If a company doesn't have a patent so that they can recover the 100 million or 200 million that drug development generally takes, they can't afford to develop it. And so if you don't have a patent, it's like the drug never existed. But I couldn't give it up in 1982. I worked on it until 1995 when I had the opportunity to go to Mexico. I continued to work in rats and monkeys during that period of time, and it continued to look wonderful. It was a great drug. And in 1995 and 96 is when I moved to Mexico and actually ran that trial. On the basis of that trial, the university actually got a patent in 1998. So here it is, 18 years after I started working on it, we finally had the opportunity to get the patent. It was just wonderful. You know, I mean, it was one of the best days in my life when we got the patent. Well, I shouldn't say that, you know, except for getting married and having children. <laughs> and, <laughs> but in my professional life, getting the patent in 1998 was just a high point. And I went to an international meeting in Helsinki, and I... I gave a talk on the drug, and it got quite a little bit of interest. But one large European drug company got interested in it, and I went to Europe. I went and talked to them, and we went over everything, and they were excited about it. And it looked like to me that a big drug company was going to pick it up, and they would spend the money and bring it to the market. The problem is, Lori, that when they examined the patent, the university attorneys had screwed up the patent. That's the kindest thing I can say about it. The mm -hmm. patent was useless. It had been filed incorrectly. It was bumbled, and it was totally useless. 
So mm-hmm. we lost that opportunity. It took us a year and a half to get the patent reexamined. <laughs> when you started asking me about the history of this, you didn't know it was going to be this long. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it took us a year and a half to get it reexamined and get the patent validated again so that it would be useful. And then the patent was licensed to a small biotech company that was going to develop it, and they went bankrupt, and a couple of you know a few years were lost. The patent was then licensed to another small biotech company that had it for a few years, and they went bankrupt, and that opportunity was lost. And then in 2008, now 10 years after the patent, so 10 years of patent life have been lost, a Swiss company got involved, and they were the first opportunity to to really work on it. They spent millions of dollars, and they spent three years of work on it, and they ran another clinical trial in Germany. So with with their clinical trial in Germany and my two clinical trials in Mexico, we now have three successful human clinical trials under our belt, and everything replicated in Germany with what I'd found in Mexico, and the one in Germany was a phase one trial on safety again, and they replicated what I'd found in Mexico, and everything looked good. But in 2008, there was a big downturn in the economy in 2008, mm-hmm. 9, 10. So when they ran the clinical trial in 2010, there was not a lot of money available to be invested in drugs. And in 2011, with only four years left on the patent, they abandoned their money. They abandoned the money they've spent and the time they spent on it because patent is running out and they're going to be unable to recover the additional costs that would be required to bring it to the market. So that's when I decided to write the book and see if I could use it to ignite interest in MSF. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's just so sad that um, that that's occurred and that you're, you're risking. Now, how, how long is the, the patent in effect again? You've got a couple of years left on it? Well, we have two years and four months left. It expires in August of 2015. But let me explain that at this point, it's as though we don't have a patent at all. If someone gave me $100 million today and said, I want you to develop the drug, it would take three years to get through the FDA and get approval. And so when it came out, it would be without any protection. It would be a generic when it came out. So the the patent, for all purposes, is already dead. Okay. So if the patent is dead and it's a generic, what does that um, does that mean? Anybody can go and and work on this drug then, and you know, I, I'm not I'm not sophisticated enough to know the details of <laughs> of how that well, works, or do, do they all just scatter and it dies and and well, nobody uh, wants to deal with it. That's if if nobody takes it through FDA approval. If it mm-hmm. were abandoned today and nobody did any more work on it, uh, the drug would be dead and it would mm-hmm. never go anywhere. And the reason for that is, at some point, somebody has to get it through the FDA approval and spend the millions of dollars 
and then once it's on the market, the FDA approves it for marketing, then if there's no patent protection on it, a generic will come in and they will rely on all the work that the other drug company did and get, and the approval that the other company got so that they could market it. Mm-hmm. But if there's no prior approval, they have the right to market it, but it's not approved, and so they cannot market it. So it's really in a catch-22. Okay. Oh, so what's, uh, how do you get around all of this? What can people do to, to help you with this? <laughs> well, thank you very much for asking. Uh, I have been really fortunate, actually, on the basis of the book. I, I was circulating a draft of the book before it was published, and I circulated it to a, a colleague of mine that I've known for over 50 years, and he has a a drug company and a chemical company up in Oregon. And he read the book, and he said, let's make this happen. Let's see Mm -hmm. if we can do this. And he's very knowledgeable about how to get approval and all that kind of thing, way more than I am. And he decided to invest a million dollars of his own money. And we organized a company called Brain Tools, that's B-R-A-I-N hyphen T-O-O-L-S, Brain Tools. Mm-hmm. And w- the sole purpose of Brain Tools is to bring MSF to the market. We're going to try to do it under the orphan product program of the FDA. There's what's called uh, orphan drugs, and they're drugs that are not covered by patents. And mm-hmm. you can get them approved through the FDA, and you do get limited market protection when they come out the other side, and we're going to try to do it as an orphan drug. If we don't get it as an orphan drug, we will try to get it through the FDA anyway and bring it out on the market as a generic. Okay. But, uh, let me say that we're, we have certain advantages with where we are right now. One of them is that I think we're over the hard part of drug approval. The uh, risky part is early in drug approval. That's when drugs fail. That's when they don't show any effect. That's when they are discovered to be toxic. We're over that. Okay. Uh, we don't owe $100 million to anybody. We don't have mm-hmm. any debt. Well... <laughs> I shouldn't say we don't have any debt. My partner, who put a million dollars in, would probably like to be paid back past mm-hmm. at some <laughs> point. But uh, we're starting out with a drug that's pretty much through the approval process, and we don't owe $100 million or, or anything. So for a small additional investment, we can come out on the other side with it approved, and we should be able to sell it for a dollar a day or two dollars a day, like I mentioned before, the, the cost of a cup of coffee. So that's what Brain Tools is going to do. And the way that we're going to raise the money, because we cannot rely on the big money from pharma that comes from stockholders or venture capitalists or any of those. Nobody's going to invest in this drug. We're going to mm-hmm. do it with crowdfunding, and crowdfunding is a relatively new method on the Internet where 
a large number of people give a small amount of money. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do is we need to find a million people who are inter- more interested in improving the treatment of Alzheimer's disease than they are in making money. There are five or six million people who are suffering from Alzheimer's disease right now. If we could get a million people to each give us $30, that would be $30 million. And that would be enough to push the drug through, we think. Of course, that's uncertain because the FDA may require more or less testing and, you know, one thing and another. But but we think with $30 million that we would be over the hump and we would be able to bring it out and make it available to patients. Wow. So have you have you set up this crowdfunding yet, or? Uh, yes, we are in the process of setting it up. I should mention okay. that this company was organized January 1st of this year, so we're uh, just three and a half months into it. Mm-hmm. If people want to participate in the crowdfunding or if they want to know more about MSF, uh, we have, a, I think, a, a good website that is www dot brain hyphen tools dot com and that's b r a i n hyphen t o o l s dot com it has to have the hyphen between brain and tools and they can go there and find out how to participate how to uh contribute to that effort mm-hmm. and we're also we're also having a charitable foundation, a 501c3 foundation, being organized. It's not quite mm-hmm. ready yet. And that is www.hopeforalzheimers, all one word, dot org. Again, that's www.hopeforalzheimers.org. And uh, Nobody can go to that website today. It's not quite finished. Uh, But in a week and perhaps in two weeks, they will be set up to accept donations to help develop MSF as well. Okay. Wonderful. Well, when that is set up, you're going to have to definitely um, shoot me a link on that, and we'll get that um, pushed out to to our audience um, and let them know because – you know, $30 can be a lot of money to some, and it's absolutely nothing to others. And, and if someone can't do 30 and can do 5 or 10, I'm sure you'd be more than glad to take that as well. And, we would. Um, any any number. I just picked 30 because we need $30 million, and if we could get a million people to give us $30. But, you know, if somebody wanted to write a check for $100 or $200 or $5, uh, it would all help. Yeah. Could I also mention that if people mm-hmm. want to know more about the drug and this story, that there's a free download of the Kindle edition of the book today, tomorrow, and Saturday at Amazon.com. If they would like to get a free Kindle download, they can go to oh, Amazon.com yeah, and search for uh, MOSS, M-O-S-S, and Alzheimer, and it will come up. Well, that's wonderful. It's a it's a great book, and it's it really does talk about your your struggles and frustrations in this in this process, along with the outcomes and the triumphs that you've had. 
Um, how does how does Big Pharma look at you these days? How does Big Pharma look at me? Mm-hmm. Is that what the question? Yep. Uh, I don't think they are worried about us because I mm-hmm. I don't think they think we can do it. Okay. I have run afoul of Big Pharma, and uh-huh. a few times I've stepped on some toes, but uh, I don't think they see us as a threat. Mm-hmm. And that that's fine with me. Yep. I don't want to excite resistance. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, it's uh, it's just such an interesting process, and you know the the political side of all of this um, in terms of of getting drugs, you know, pushed through. And you know, I'm all for things being safe. But you know, at at what cost too um, does it take? Especially when we've got a disease that's going to affect so many, and you know, the cost factors are pushing through, and they're saying it can crush the country. And you know, how, how does all that? How how does how do we make it all work and be reasonable? Um, Rose is just saying, yippee! She's just so excited, you know, that you're going to be. Um, allowing people to help you push this drug through and be able to to donate um, to the cause and and um, you know be able to to help because there's so many people that want to help but don't know how um, to reach out and so that's one of the things I love about about this show is again we're all about raising the voice and hearing you know what is going on. Can you tell us a little bit without getting too technical? Can you explain how memory works and why MSF is so different from the other drugs? Uh, Yes. Uh, But before I do that, Lori, I want to speak just to what you raised a moment ago about getting the word out and how people can help, even if they cannot cannot send money. Uh, This project is going to rise or fall on getting the word out on public opinion. And so mm-hmm. if they can't... Hello? Hello, hello. I think we lost him somehow. So hopefully he'll call back in. To big groups of people. Uh, oh, we, we have Dr. To get Moss, the I'm going to have you rewind because we, we lost you totally there for a minute. So can you, can oh. you start all over? Not sure, sure. what happened. Okay. Uh, before I go in and talk about how memory works and what the problem is, I would like to go back and speak uh, to what you brought up about uh, getting the word out, spreading the word that it's so important. Uh, The success of this project is going to rise or fall on getting the word out. So if people cannot send money, uh, if they just talk to other people about it, uh, tell others, and spread the word, that will help as much as money, actually. And if they can get me on more talk shows or invite me to speak so that we can get everyone involved, then we can have success. Uh, But then you asked about how memory works and what's special about MSF. It's Mm -hmm. Actually, MSF is in the same category of drug as Aricept and Exelon, but MSF works so much better. And the question is, why is it so superior? Mm-hmm. And the answer is that by a fluke of nature, uh, what we need in the brain for memory is a compound called acetylcholine. Uh, 
What we need in the brain for memory, acetylcholine, is the same chemical that is used to control the movement of the intestines. And actually, it also is involved in pacing the heart and other muscles outside of the brain. But it's the intestines that are the problem. Aricept and Exelon increase acetylcholine in the brain, which helps repair memory. But it, they also increase acetylcholine in the intestines. And so that's why they're plagued with the side effects of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. The result is that patients cannot be given a dose that will adequately improve memory. So they're stuck. They're limited by side effects that, that prevent patients from being able to tolerate effective doses. MSF is different. MSF produces four or five times as much effect in the brain as it does in the intestines. And because of that, MSF is relatively free of those side effects of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And it gives us the first opportunity to test the real clinical power of, of getting an effect in the brain. It can produce an effect in the brain that Aricept and Exelon cannot do. Interesting. I, I, you know, I'm surprised we just haven't heard more about this. I'm not very good at self-promotion. <laughs> mm -hmm. that's, so, that's the short answer. Okay. So, again, all of our listeners can really help you push this out um, just by going to the website and liking it and tweeting on it and posting it on Facebook to try to help get uh, more exposure for, for what it is you're doing. And, you know, it's amazing what can be done. I mean, with, with my audience here, you know, we got to be recognized as the number one influencer for Alzheimer's. You know, and that's not just my doing. That's our audience. That's all of us working together for a greater cause. And I think sometimes we forget the power that each of us has when we become, a, you know, part of a group on a mission in that grassroots effort. Um, can be absolutely um, so, so powerful in making significant changes. So I would really urge people to um, to go to Kindle and, you know, get your free copy of the book while you can, or if you like the hard copy, you know, go pick it up. Um, it really is um, an easy read. Um, even though it's a big book, you've got it in big print, which I love, and, you know, you've you've laid it out. Uh, very nicely, I think, for people to, to understand the importance um, of the book in and of itself. Can you tell us, um, you know, right now, um, are, are there patients, are there any trials going on right now with the drug, or is it just kind of in a standstill hold? Uh, no, there are no trials going on right now. Uh, the last clinical trial was run in 2010 in Germany, and uh, there are no trials ongoing right now. In the short run, we need to run a longer clinical trial to build on what the Swiss company has already done. And I should mention that we have the option to step in right where the Swiss company left off and use their data and move forward. What we need in the short run is we need $3 million this year 
to run a chronic toxicity study in, in rats and dogs. We don't have enough information about long-term use of the drug yet. Uh, that's one step that we have to take. And then we will start the next human clinical study as soon as that is over. And we think that we can get that done for the total of $30 million from where we are right now and maybe have it on the market in three years. But no, there's no one that's on MSF right now. There are no clinical trials going on. And it is at a standstill until we can get the word out and get the funding in place. Okay. Are you um, scheduled to be going to, you know, any conferences? I know like Alzheimer's Disease International has one coming up to try to help promote that, or is that just not a, a platform for you? No, no we're, we're going to have a booth, an exhibit, at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference in July in Boston. And I would invite everyone who's listening, if you're at that conference, to come by and talk to me or talk to us. It's going to be a brain tools exhibit. And uh, we're going to have information about MSF to hand out there. And we'd love to talk to anyone that, that uh, is going to be there. Okay, wonderful. I didn't know if you were, when you said you were going, I didn't know if you were going to the one in Taipei here coming up next week or or not. So there's one in Boston no. that you're, that no, you're going to be at. Boston is our next meeting. Okay. Okay. Well, that is that is a wonderful. Um, is there any more information that you want to share uh, with our audience in terms of um, the drug itself or the process um, in which they might be able to help you? Well, uh, we've covered the main the main points, and that is to get the word out, talk to other people, talk to congressmen, talk to neighbors, talk to everyone, uh, and go and find out more about MSF at our uh, website for braintools.com and get the, get the word out. Uh, that, that's what we need right now. Okay, okay. And again, the the website um, that they should go to would be uh, www.brain b r a i n and then dash tools t o o l s dot com, and that'll give you all the information. Or you can go to Amazon and um, get a free Kindle um, of the book. And and then the hope for Alzheimer's dot org will be the five hundred one C three that is coming out um, in the next week or two, where people can also donate. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Well, I so appreciate your time with us today. It's just a you know again, I encourage people to to go get your free book on Kindle, um, you know, or go run and. Um, and pick this up or have it delivered to your house if you like that hard copy. It's really a very interesting read. I think it will be uh, an eye-opener in terms of the real world of the makings of drugs and uh, the process and the costs associated with it. I know I know that it definitely was for me uh, with that. So, again, I thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And I wish you the best of luck, and I want you to definitely keep me posted as as things progress. 
Well, thank you, Lori. And as I said at the beginning of the show, you're the first person that has provided a national and, and actually international platform to start spreading the word out there. And I know that you have a, a well-educated, well-informed listener base. They know about Alzheimer's disease. They know about the tragedy and the and the suffering that goes along with the dementia, and they know about the high cost of this. So this is an excellent place for us to start our campaign. And I, I would really encourage people to go to the Brain Tools website and click on... Uh, the website has a animation, a really nice animation of how MSF works and why it's superior to Exelon and uh, Aricept. It also has links to all of the scientific papers that have been published. As I said in the beginning, that this is a really mainstream pharmaceutical. It's not an alternative medicine or anything. It's a powerful uh, drug that will in enhance brain function. And all of this research has been published in scientific and medical journals that are peer-reviewed. And you can go to that website and click on the links to those peer-reviewed journals. And I would like for everyone to educate themselves or learn as much as they can about MSF and help me bring the word to everyone that might be interested. Thank you very much, Lori. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for spending the time with us today. I do also want to um, mention to our audience, if you haven't checked out our latest uh, edition of Dementia Chats, I'm going to go ahead and put a link for you in there. This last session we had, these are free webinars um, that Alzheimer's Speaks provides twice a month, and this last session was really, really powerful um, and talked about um, recognition for people and what really throws people with dementia for a loop. Um, there was also some great information for um, clinics and doctors and hospitals as well as families. It was, it was quite a fascinating chat. So I'm going to go ahead and put that link um, in, in the chat box here that you can go ahead and check out or you can go to alzheimerspeaks.com and then just go to our About tab, and then from there go to the section on being dementia-friendly. Our next uh, Dementia Chats will be on April 23rd, and those are always at the same time. That's 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific, and 4 o'clock if you're over in London. And we would love to have you join us. Otherwise, again, you can watch those after the fact as well. Our next show coming up will be on the 18th, and again, we're going to have Alzheimer's Disease International uh, with us. They'll be joining us from Taipei, and we will have um, Executive Director Mark Waltman Wortman with us. Uh, Mark has been on the show several times in the past, and we will also have Dr. Jacob Roy from India, who is the current chair of Alzheimer's Disease International. We'll also have uh, Daisy Acosta from the Dominica, um, Dominican Republic, and she was the prior chair. So we'll be hearing all about what's going to be happening um, at their conference in Taipei on April 18th through the 20th. You can always go to www.alz.co.uk for more information on their 28th International Conference. 
They also have tons of information regarding um, statistics, a fabulous uh, video about removing stigmas. Uh, so it's just a great resource site. And then if you're looking for any Alzheimer's Association throughout the world, you will be able to uh, find that there as well. So in the meantime, um, please have a wonderful, wonderful week. We'll be shoveling out here in Minnesota. And then um, we've got lots of great shows coming up. So remember what your memory chip teaches us all, to focus on three simple things. Are they safe? Are they happy? And are they pain-free? Until next time, this is Lori LeBay. We'll see you soon. Bye. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.